Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. The next eight weeks, the Rewatchables will be covering eight films that are incredibly rewatchable despite having one major flaw. So far, we've covered the movie Higher Learning, and this Wednesday, Bill Simmons, Chris Ryan, and Ryan Russillo are talking about the 1985 wrestling classic, Vision Quest. So make sure and check out the flawed Rewatchables on the Rewatchables feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. David, there was a small controversy at the NFL Scouting Combine this week when the media room cooler apparently ran out of Diet Pepsi. (laughs) What I want to know is, is this the most sports writer thing that has ever happened? (laughs) Well, you would know better than me, but uh, yes. Um, Or I... I, I feel bad about airing his uh, his dirty laundry in public, but our own, the ringer's own, John Gonzalez, um, having seen that tweet, uh, replied that uh, once when he was covering basket when he's covering sports in Philly, a writer there got pissed off because the Eagles media lunchroom ran out of grilled cheese. So he was <laughs> he was again quoting from from John. He was literally complaining about a free lunch. Um, the uh, it's that is just just amazing. Now listen, who amongst us has not you know been a little bit pissy because you know you you didn't even realize there was a buffet until you'd already been there for two hours or something but yeah you can't the absence of diet coke is maybe just the perfect distillation of uh of um a very subset of needs and entitlement it's one of those things you never want to admit publicly if you're a sports writer listen i and i'm about to admit this publicly at the super bowl and here it's there's all kinds of violins playing right now I went to the media center press room and I really needed a diet Pepsi or a diet Coke or something to get me through my day in content. It had been completely picked over and I can tell you what's left when it's picked over and it is non-diet Sierra mist. <laughs> that is the last thing every sports writer wants, by the way, amazing that sports writers are always want diet drinks, right? This is not the healthiest tribe of people in the world, but when it comes to drinks, we must have our diet Pepsis. We, we cannot deal without. And I'd also tell you that the sports writer lunch complaint is every single time there's food, right? Yeah. Nobody is ever. And in fact, a friend of mine saw a famous sports writer at the Super Bowl, a famous sports writer in, in the press box. This is at the actual Super Bowl game, stuffing food into his mouth, free food, and complaining that the game started too late. That's, <laughs> that's not a joke. This is somebody everybody knows. We are the mellow yellow zero of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots and lots to get to today. We'll give you a preview of what's going to happen during the South Carolina primary and on Super Tuesday. We'll talk about yet another media company quavering before James O'Keefe and Project Veritas, your listener mail, plus the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, I think we got to start with that raucous debate Tuesday night in South (laughs) Carolina. I got a sense we were in for a big night when I heard the theme song CBS began the evening with. By the way, true story. When I pulled up Stone Cold's theme song on YouTube, a Mike Bloomberg ad played before it. Yes, amazing. I'm not kidding. 
Amazing. David, the cable news consensus coming out of Tuesday was that Bernie Sanders had his worst debate, but that it wasn't bad enough on its own to change the trajectory of the race. What do you make of that? I'm not sure what could happen. I mean, short of like a almost literal meltdown um, to really, really, I mean, change the course of the of the race in a way that like you could really point to that thing and say that was the moment. Um, you know, 538 is doing this interesting thing, 538 Project, I think it's called, where they're sort of like dealing with they're, they're I think they're polling actual voters or likely voters and sort of seeing how they react to these debates. And um, there's a lot of different info in there. But 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 one thing is they sort of like measure the the way that the their the 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 pollies uh opinion of the, how how someone did in a debate based on how popular they were going in with the assumption that people will think they did better if they're more popular on the front end so if you're like really popular but they you do mediocre then that's actually way worse because people were in, were inclined to give you a good score anyway that's a really long way to say um you know bernie was uh, had a whole lot of support going in, but I wouldn't say that his like in-party favorables were super high. <laughs> I'm not sure of what he what he proved. I don't I don't know if what he came out with was a wash, but I think that the that even though this was the first debate where fire was specifically trained on him for the bulk of it, I'm not sure that's exactly how we're gonna remember this debate. And I'm not sure that this debate's even gonna be meaningful in a week or in two weeks. Well, as we discussed on Tuesday, Pete Buttigieg used what I think is the most basic and potent argument against Sanders, which is, we like you, Bernie. We admire you. We're just afraid you're going to lose. Yeah. And he didn't just say lose the presidency either. Listen to how he made the argument. I'll tell you exactly what it adds up to. It adds up to four more years of Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, and the inability to get the Senate into Democratic hands. The time has come for us to stop acting like the presidency is the only office that matters. Not only is this a way to get Donald Trump reelected, we got a House to worry about. We got a Senate to worry about. And this is this is really important. Look, Hello. if you want to keep the House in Democratic hands, you might want to check with the people who actually turned the House blue. 40 Democrats who are not running on your platform. They are running away from your platform as fast as they possibly can. Vice I want to send those Democrats back to the Vice United President States Biden. House. Let's Wait listen to them. I'm not sure that Pete, and maybe I'm biased, I'm not sure Pete has quite the cred to be going full snark in a in a debate, <laughs> although I'm not sure anybody had has the cred to, to conduct themselves in the way they did uh, that night. Um I agree that that's a really temptingly, I mean, that's a really tempting argument, right? I, I think he went a little bit overboard with it, but maybe this is part of the calculus that he needs to seem like an attacker, an attack dog in this case, because, well, I mean, I think it'd be pretty easy to formulate a case that Pete Buttigieg would be unelectable running against Trump, too. I mean, it's, I understand that Bernie is a particular issue, I mean, has, has particular drawbacks, but. But right now, we're not even at elect Pete Buttigieg. We're at stop Bernie Sanders, if you're every other Democrat on that stage. Well, I'll, yes, and I'll say this. I actually thought a more compelling case, if, you know, certainly more subtle, I mean, maybe not more subtle, was made by Elizabeth Warren when she said, you know, we agree on a lot of stuff. I just think I'd be a better president. And it wasn't really making the electability argument because even though that might be real, that's a sort of like inside baseball sort of formulation, right? I mean, you're 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 counting on the voter to to actually like pay attention to state by state polling and and electoral college counting. I think Elizabeth Warren really made the made 
the pro-Warren argument at the same time by saying, listen, we agree. I think I'd be a better president. But but there, the subtle dig there was somebody up on stage here is electable and presidential, right? And it's not the guy standing next to me. So, yeah. I mean, it I, it is inside baseball, I guess, if you go the full Nate Silver on it. But I don't know, right? Poll after poll said, what do Democrats want to do? They want to beat Trump. And, you know, at least if they're like the Democrats I know, they are looking over this whole field of who's going to beat Donald Trump and who's not going to screw this up. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, and Bernie, by the way, answers has an answer for all that, pointing to polls saying, look, I'm doing just as well against Donald Trump as, as all the other candidates on stage. But to me, that's just the basic argument about him. If you don't want to tangle with him, don't want to go fully in on Medicare for all, if you don't want to let him sort of outflank you that he is that he is going for it policy-wise and you're not, the easiest argument is just you're not going to win. Sure. You're not going to win. And or your odds of winning are much lower than than, say, generic Democrat, which, by the way, there are several generic Democrats on the stage. <laughs> the stage is full of generic Democrats. Um, sure. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I don't disagree that like that is the that is a very compelling and perhaps the most powerful argument you can make against Bernie Sanders, especially when you're willing to like concede 75 percent of his platform. But. You know, you're right. Bernie has the response to it. And Bernie has I mean, and I think there's probably a more philosophical response, which is, you know, you don't you're not going to win by trying not to lose. It's certainly not in a presidential election. This is why people get elected to second terms every time. Yeah. You know, Democrats have been down the trying not to lose path. uh, Cough 2016 cough, you know, more times than they would like to remember. Absolutely. And I think that you know, again, that's also inside baseball. But I think, I guess the real power maybe of, of what Buttigieg is doing is to, as we've discussed before, just openly, like, air out the unelectability issue, right? Just to, like, if, if this now becomes part of the conversation, part of the public conver- discourse, then that is a, that, that could potentially spell doom for Bernie just because, you know, th- that's what people are going to be talking about. Yeah, it is. I will. All that said, I thought Bernie Sanders, I agree with you. I thought he held up very, very well to those attacks. And I think the funniest thing to me about Bernie right now is seeing him as a front runner because he is ideologically and stylistically an insurgent. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Ber- Bernie, Bernie just doesn't seem like a front runner. He seems like the guy who's encouraging you to be your best self over there. And he, he did a 60 minutes piece with Anderson Cooper last Sunday. And it was the same thing. Like he's kind of cracking jokes. He's kind of being a little bit self-regarding. Oh, these, hey, you know, I guess, I guess, I guess my ideas are working. I, I'm winning primaries. People are, people are coming toward me a little bit on policy. It's just funny to see him in that mode because I'm not sure I would have expected that. I'm not sure either. Um, on the one hand, he has to seem presidential. On the other hand, you know, every populist, every successful movement, populist or otherwise, if it's successful, at some point become, you know, takes the lead, right? Um, but we don't remember those movements as ever being, you know, I mean, as as being frontrunner movements. I, I'm not sure that he can't continue as an underdog. And the flip side of that is, I, I wonder if all these anti-Bernie forces in the media and elsewhere wouldn't be wouldn't be better off just treating him like the frontrunner. You know, just ignore, no. I mean, if we're just like, better if everyone's like, never. If, if they're just like, no, no, not just going after him, just be like, just treat him as inevitable and then watch the vote, watch the, the voting populace just like, you know, flip the script on him. Absolutely. David, on Tuesday, Joe Biden had a breakthrough. After nine rounds oh of debates, God. he finally realized he didn't have to observe the artificial time limits. Joe Biden said, folks, 
I'm going to ramble as long as I want. Bernie, in fact, hasn't passed much of anything. The fact of the matter is, but I get to answer that. I get to answer that. Look, the fact is, here's the deal. I'm not out of time. You spoke over time, and I'm going to talk. Here's the deal. (laughs) Another cable news take that I thought was mostly true. Biden had his best debate Tuesday night. We've seen low energy Biden. We've seen confused Biden. This was angry Biden. This was mm-hmm. fighting Biden. I don't know if you can come out spit nails like that every week, but it was much preferable to the other versions of him that we've seen during this campaign. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it, I think it'll probably reflect really well on him. You know, anecdotally, the only clips of I've I've seen of him from the entire debate were him yelling that he was going to talk over his time. It wasn't actually what he <laughs> what he used that time to say. Again. Uh, in an election, especially like this one, that could be a huge positive for him. I'm not sure if it actually had the intended effect, but maybe that's what it was. Um, we, we, I mean, it's really, I'm, I, this is a, I'm sure an implicit insult, but the, but you know, in his previous debate appearances, he's been going head to head more with the clock and with the moderators and just with like the basic concept of time and debate structure than he is against anybody else on the stage. So at least this time. <laughs> He took a swing, you know, I mean, he, yeah. he, he, he came out fighting. At least this time he won that battle yeah. rather yeah. than losing it. I thought he did two things well, generally speaking. One was with his campaign on the line in South Carolina, he went in and he's like, I'm going to kitchen sink this thing tonight. Uh, at the end, he said, at the end of the day, he goes, you know what? I'm going to appoint an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. He just, just out of nowhere, just kind of added that on. And we're like, wow, okay, cool. That was, that was interesting to know. But it was like, I'm not going to leave anything on the table tonight. I have to win South Carolina. It's amazing how much better your performance gets when there is no margin for error. More importantly, long-term though, I thought, Biden was rehearsing the arguments he might get to use against Sanders if he gets him one-on-one after Super Tuesday, right? Argument number one, you had a bunch of what you now acknowledge are bad votes on gun control. Number two, Bernie, you wanted to primary the nation's first black president in 2012. No matter what you say now, you were wandering around New Hampshire in 2011, clearly thinking about primarying him. Uh, Plus, you can add what Pete Buttigieg in there. To me, that's the outline of what the Biden campaign looks like. Again, a lot of this is we're still a couple of moves down the line. But if he does decently on Super Tuesday, if he gets Bernie in a one-on-one or maybe a two-on-one matchup with Bloomberg, those are the kind of things he's going to be able to use against him. Yeah, I mean, the whole tone of the debate felt like they all were tired of having the same conversation, right? It was a group of people who have been yelling at each other in the exact same format for, for too long, and you can put up with it for a while. But I think everybody on stage was ready to be in a three-person debate or a two-person debate or even a four-person debate, you know, just like have a different, have, you know, a slightly different calculus. Bloomberg, you know, has been, was fresh blood, but he sort of just like underscored the fact that this thing is unwieldy and impractical and everyone just sort of comes out feeling like a loser. Um, So you're right about Biden. I think everybody would be happy to be practicing their... uh, their speed, their, their their debate tactics for when this thing shrinks down. I'm going to disagree with you slightly on Elizabeth Warren. Granted, I could watch her attack Mike Bloomberg all day and, yeah. and, and twice on Sunday. Unfortunately, what's standing between her and any chance of the nomination is not Bloomberg, it's Bernie. And 
I'm not sure her attempt to differentiate herself from Bernie was particularly effective. This is new, right? The last one we heard is, look, I'm the bridge between Bernie and Biden. If you find, if you don't want to go too far to the left or too far to the center, I'm the candidate who's acceptable to everybody. This time it was more like, I share many of Bernie's values, but I'm more detail-oriented. I know how to actually accomplish these things. I'm like ordering a progressive hero in the mail, but I come with an instruction manual. (laughs) That's essentially what she's saying, right? Yeah. Again, it feels a bit late and a little bit subtle to me to be making that argument when you clearly need either Bernie people or Bernie adjacent people to have any chance of winning this nomination. Yeah. And and frankly, I think her probably a more compelling version of that argument is that she's updated the progressive hero instruction manual for the 21st century. And and mm. you can, and, and maybe you make well, you like can make that. you make the subtle jab that you know Bernie hasn't. <laughs> I mean, I agree with almost all of Bernie's major platform points, but it's not like, you know, it, it, she, I mean, she obviously just has more gravitas when she's talking about big banks and, you know, Wall Street and stuff like that. It just seems like something that she's a little bit more, uh, more de- dexterous discussing. Um, but you're right. I mean, she's got Bernie, Bernie standing right in her way. And I don't know that anything she did at the debate is going to change that. I think. I think what I, the, I mean, the, the the real positive, I guess, or the real significant thing I took from the debate for her is that didn't feel like she was going anywhere. I think she kind of made the statement by go, by taking Bernie on that she was in this for the long haul. And I think that obviously her only path to victory is a um, marathon. Uh, but that certainly makes her a more compelling candidate than someone who looks like they might drop out as soon as, you know, the next uh, the next round of uh, of donations are announced or something. It may be an ultra marathon. Yeah. Because it doesn't look like it's going to be on Super Tuesday. And I don't know when, you know, again, Massachusetts is on Super Tuesday. So certainly if Elizabeth Warren is still in the race at that point, that's a, that's a must win. But yeah, I don't, I had here down Elizabeth Warren versus Chris Matthews. Do we want to talk about this? I'm so tired of Chris Matthews. It had been, I mean, a, I think it's, it, it I had think been it's a, three whole days since the Nazi thing. So he was due for for another terrible moment. Right, and he he apologized, we should say, uh right uh, the the day that we recorded the last segment, he apologized in, you know, uh, I guess fairly convincing fashion. No one should expect Chris Matthews to learn a lesson, you know, no or or, or certainly not or certainly not a a sort of broader lesson about how to conduct himself, you know, beyond the specific instance that he was just apologetic for. But it is just unbelievable that immediately on the heels of that he just went after elizabeth warren in such i mean do you want to, do we need to describe what happened i guess yeah um she had <laughs> reminded us <laughs> you could hear my enthusiasm she reminded us during the debate that there was a saleswoman who worked for mike bloomberg saleswoman was pregnant and mike bloomberg allegedly said kill it referring to the baby mm-hmm. bloomberg has denied this and did again tuesday night but a witness who worked for Bloomberg had earlier corroborated that story to the Washington Post. So here after the debate is Chris Matthews and Elizabeth Warren. Anybody who has a story to tell can come tell. Sure, I agree with everybody deserves a credible response when they make a, a, a charge like that. My question about him, you believe he's lying. I believe the woman. You believe he's which lying. Which means he's not telling the truth. And why would he lie? Because just to protect himself. Yeah. And why would she lie? 
I mean, that's the question, Chris. Why do you it's assume a striking that event. he's the guy? I just want to make sure you're clear about this. You're confident of your accusation. Look, all I know is what she said yeah. and what he said. And I've been on her end of it sure. in the sense right. of discrimination based on pregnancy. It happens all across this country and men all across this country say, oh, my gosh, he never would have said that. Really? A lot of parts of that got dragged, but I think it was why would he lie? Yeah. That really lit people on fire. Yeah. And that sort of obtuseness. Why would somebody lie in that scene? I know. <laughs> I, I I can give you a bunch of reasons. When they're running for president, I can give you a really big one. Um, Chris Matthews does not seem to have learned that particular lesson. Let's talk about Mike Bloomberg, I guess. Grading on a pretty insane curve, he wasn't wow. as bad as he was in Nevada. I wouldn't say he was good either. In other news, his polls have stalled. Oh. And I think the thing, and I think part of the reason is, in two debates, he was absolutely unable to make any kind of affirmative case of why Mike Bloomberg should be president. Why he, a former Republican, a former champion of stop and frisk and a hundred other things that we now he now forswears could be the guy to lead the party. <laughs> I never heard him make that case. I just heard him fending off other people's jabs. How about you? I mean, the problem with starting your campaign with a like zillion dollar media buy, uh, I guess, is that and, and when you and when you do inflate the inflate your poll numbers and not artificially inflate, I mean, that's part of the process, right? But when you spend all this money getting shooting your poll numbers way, way up. Well, then somehow you have to live up to that when you get out in front of people in person, when you get on the debate stage. And, you know, maybe his maybe his error was not just, you know, hiding in his in his cave until the you know, the, the pack had winnowed itself down a little bit further. But you're right. He hasn't gotten out there and stood out and stood out from everybody else, even in the slightest. He had a better debate uh, in South Carolina than he did in Nevada, but I guess we are grading on a huge curve. I think him being sort of, you know, smarmy and insufferable at least humanized him a little bit, right? I mean, it's, I, I guess, I mean, that's, <laughs> that I think is the curve that we're grading him on. Yeah, thank God we finally get to see the smarmy, insufferable side of Mike Bloomberg. And frankly, it's not, I mean, I don't think people are totally averse to that, I mean, to a, you know, sort of, wealthy wise ass. I mean, I, I think there's some assumption sort of like with Trump, there's a built in idea that, that you got to have to be a certain sort of personality to accomplish that much stuff. Mm -hmm. But it does sort of run uh, in the opposite direction from the impression that his that all of his commercials have given us. Right. I mean, him walking out on stage and or walking out in front of a, a crowd of people and explaining what Mike can get it done means, you know, in, in dulcet tones or whatever is not the same person who we see when he's out there being himself. And people were complaining that his commercials were running during the debate. Mm -hmm. At least two of them ran. One may have run right after the debate was over. I, I actually think that did him a disservice to exactly what you're talking about. You'd watch this really well-packaged, well-produced commercial, and then actual living Mike would walk out on stage and be like, oh, that doesn't seem like this guy at all. Yeah. Uh, that is that guy's not as nimble and and admirable as the guy I just watched in the ad. Yeah. So I'm not sure at the end of the day it did him a thing. It's it's going to be interesting. We'll we'll get to reevaluate this in a week or two. But 
everybody was worried, are you going to be able to buy an election? Can a billionaire buy an election? Just swoop in whenever he wants. Mm -hmm. And this might wind up being, despite pretty ideal circumstances, I think, with, you know, a big muddle, no centrist coming out of the early primaries. This might prove, at least in this one case, the opposite lesson. I want to say a final word, David, about CBS, if that's okay. Let's do it. Pretty hard to win as a media person during an election. I mean, people get mad at us. So, of course, they're going to go after Nora O'Donnell and Gail King, who moderated the debate. <laughs> yeah. But that whole show was a mess. They lost control of the conversation. Sure. Even though everyone knew it was going to be desperation time. Coronavirus and other stuff we hadn't heard chewed over a thousand times didn't come up until over halfway through. I believe Mike Bloomberg was the one who brought up coronavirus. And then there was this, which blew my mind. We're like an hour and 57 minutes into the debate. Nora O'Donnell thinks the debate is over. <laughs> Surprise. It's not. Well, thank you. That concludes our debate. Nope. No, we have time for one more break, Nora, one more break. Time flies when you're having fun. You're watching the Democratic debate right here on CBS. CBS goes to commercial at that point. They come back and the debate is, in fact, over. <laughs> There's no more content. They just wanted to jam in that extra ad. And as someone who studies TV anchors for a living, Nora O'Donnell had this amazing frozen smile on her face. And you're right. like, this is going to be bad later. She is pissed and she has the right to be pissed because this looks absolutely terrible. Yeah. I mean, at least it takes a little bit of the heat off her for the rest of the night, right? I mean, it's... it's yeah, the, people forget, yeah. Yeah, the moderators are are usually... They get a little bit too much blame uh, for a, a poorly run debate. Um in this case, I think she was able to, I mean, most of that blame was was uh, forcefully deferred onto the producers and whoever backstage was making these decisions or yelling in Gail's ear as, uh, as Nora tried to end the debate. All right, David, time now for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received during the aforementioned debate. There was a ton of crazy-ass crosstalk. Lots of people trying to get in their points. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, this is the several people are typing <laughs> of debates. Thanks to Michael Shambo for that one. Very good piece this week in the New York Times, David, by Annie Carney. She was able to track down Ronnie Jackson. Remember him? He was Trump's personal physician. He is now running for Congress in the great state of Texas. Uh, she was able to get in at least one question about Trump's health. Ronnie Jackson tells her about Trump. We were working on his diet. We were making the ice cream less accessible. We were putting cauliflower into the mashed potatoes. This was <laughs> the president's personal physician. We were putting the cauliflower into the mashed potatoes. <laughs> That's really good, though. Imagine like like pureed cauliflower. I'm uh, I highly endorsed. That. Yeah, exactly. It's you shouldn't have to trick the the customer, though, right? You should let them know. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. This is like when you have to wrap a dog's pill in cheese. <laughs> Thanks to Scott Tobias for that one. And finally, David, did you see the infamous Neil deGrasse Tyson tweet? Oh no! Neil deGrasse Tyson is entering the Bill James zone. 
where a universally beloved figure <laughs> blows it all on Twitter. Tyson tweeted, the film A Marriage Story should instead have been named A Divorce Story. <laughs> Good point. Uh, he's making a lot of sense. Some pretty great responses. Uh, I'll read you a few. The film A Simple Plan should have should instead have been named an apparently simple plan that goes horrifically wrong. <laughs> the film Little Women should instead have been named Normal-Sized Women. <laughs> the film Goodfellas should instead have been named Badfellas. Amazing. The film Taxi Driver should instead have been named The Murder Guy. I <laughs> <laughs> love that one. And this from comedian Patton Oswalt. Wait till you see the never-ending story. You're going to go cuckoo. <laughs> if you thought broadcast news should instead have been named many flaws in the delivery system of news on American commercial television, <laughs> congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Fantastic. All right, in the notebook dump, David, let us do a little preview of South Carolina and Super Tuesday. This week, we've got the Democratic primary equivalent of an NBA back-to-back. Right. Except candidates can't blow off the second half of the back to back like NBA players do. <laughs> First up on Saturday night, we've got the returns from South Carolina. Polls close at 7 p.m. Eastern. That's when you're going to want to be in front of the television. What's different about South Carolina? Well, according to Vox, 60 percent of the state's Democratic voters are African-American compared to less than 5 percent in the first two states. South Carolina tends, Vox notes, to be a good predictor, or a bellwether, if you will, of what's going to happen in the rest of the South, too. You win South Carolina, there's a really good chance you're going to win Georgia and other states. That's pretty important. Just the primaries. Let's be clear about that. Just the primaries. That's right. <laughs> if you win the South Carolina Democratic primary, that does not mean you're going to win Georgia or South Carolina. If you're a Democrat, you are certainly not winning South <laughs> yeah. Carolina. Georgia, at least you, we could argue, you know, there's a chance. There's a little bit of purple in there. Yeah. yeah. The stakes are pretty straightforward. Joe Biden has to win South Carolina. He probably will win South Carolina, at least according to the most recent polls. Uh, I thought this was a good point by Dave Weigel. He says coverage of South Carolina really couldn't be better for Biden. He's led in every poll of the state, but gotten underdog stories, which is true. Is a very comeback kid kind of vibe to it when, in fact, he's never trailed. Yeah. The question I think to watch Saturday night is this. How much does billionaire Tom Steyer who's been courting black voters and hitting 15% or thereabouts in the real clear politics polling average, hold down Biden's margin of victory. That's huge, right? Because Joe Biden doesn't need to just win. He ideally needs a huge win to launch him to Super Tuesday three days later. Second big thing, as soon as those returns come in, David, and you and I are sitting there uh, playing with our kids and watching MSNBC. <laughs> Just like every night. Just like every night. If the returns go Biden-Sanders-Steyer as we expect, the pressure is going to mount on everybody else to drop out. Amy Klobuchar. I think Pete Buttigieg, too, by the way. Uh, I don't think Elizabeth Warren, again, after you know a bunch of very mediocre results, is going to be spared from this. And the argument's going to go by staying in the race, you're ensuring Bernie Sanders is going to win. I mean, that's certainly a lens through which you can, you can look at... Judge's performance in the debate, right? I mean, at this, if, if he sees, I mean, it's either he's going to get a lot of support for looking like a real proactive attack dog or, you know, if nothing else, he's, he's you know, the kamikaze mission begins. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to drop out, right? 
Oh, certainly not. And I find it hard to imagine that he would. But, you know, the stakes are certainly high right now. Yeah. And it's and again, if you look at his results, you go, wow, tie in Iowa or a co-win in Iowa. Strong, pretty strong second in New Hampshire. Didn't do quite as well in Nevada. But the question is, where are you going to win next? Are you going to win a single primary on Super Tuesday? It doesn't look like it. So what's your plan, right? I'd say the same thing about Amy Klosher. And by the way, the same thing about Elizabeth Warren, too. If you're not set up to win anything, yeah. or just in, in maybe in Klobuchar and Warren's case, Minnesota and Massachusetts, their home states, what do you do? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, if it would be wild if Mayor Pete dropped out now because of what you said. I mean, because of his performance in Iowa and New Hampshire. And listen, there have been some, some dark horse winners in those states in cycles past, no doubt about it. But if anything, you know, his, his, his performances, I think, and the same thing goes for Bernie Sanders, to be honest. His performances were uh, were somewhat shrouded by the fact that like he sort of just kept up with where the polling was. Mm-hmm. But if you look at where he was a month before, or God forbid, two months before those primaries actually took place, um, he it was a pretty a couple of pretty stunning performances for him. And the fact that he's up there on stage being treated as a real presidential candidate, considering where this campaign began, is really impressive. Th- same thing goes for Bernie. I mean, you, yes, it, it's it's constantly. It's it's constantly mind-boggling to me that someone can underperform a poll by one percent, and it can be seen as a loss when all the poll was trying to do was like tell, guess what where we were going to be after the <laughs> after the votes were counted. Right? It has nothing to do with the the, the candidate didn't underperform by getting one one percent less. And one percent is good, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's that that means the poll was good, and that means the candidate was easily within the margin of error. Yeah. But I, but I think, but you're right. I mean, the, the Saturday, the the drums, the drum beat's going to begin. Um, I, I personally find it really hard to imagine anybody, but maybe Klobuchar, dropping out. Um, I mean, obviously Tom Steyer, if he if he has a if he doesn't pop up in the top three, that'll be a huge loss for him. Although I don't know that it's in his interest to drop out, and he certainly is. He's on his own clock. Um, I think that the that. It'll be. I wonder how South Carolina then will play to play against Super Tuesday. I mean, is it is it possible that there's like the calculus? You talk about what's your path forward. Is it possible that someone like Pete Buttigieg would say, "I'm gonna quit while I'm ahead"? You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna drop out of the race before I lose all the primaries on Super Tuesday. So I, th- that's sort of interesting. But I, but I find it. But all of these candidates just seem so committed at this point. They've all lasted this long. We'll see. I want to take it one step further. Let's say you have a pretty good idea after Saturday night that you're not going to win the Democratic nomination. Mm -hmm. Super Tuesday comes so quickly that don't you have like a 24 to 48 hour period where you can suddenly be really influential in this thing? Mm -hmm. If you're Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, they're not going to be Bernie Sanders endorsers, at least in the primary, right? I assume they'll line up behind Sanders if and when he wins the nomination. But what if you turn around and say, you know what? Joe Biden campaign Monday morning. Let's go find a nice Super Tuesday state. Let's find a podium, and I want to endorse you right now. All right, I want I want to put my finger on the scale. Now, there's downside to that. Maybe if you're Amy Klobuchar, you get primaried in Minnesota next time. But don't you have a window where you can be very influential, and your quick dropout, quick endorsement? might play some kind of role in the race. And then especially if Biden winds up winning in the marathon, you look pretty good in your setup. Um, 
I, I, part of me wonders if that if the entire like for, like you know dropped out candidate endorsement has lost all of its mojo after Chris Christie's performance four years ago. But <laughs> but he endorsed Trump, right? No, I know. I mean, and Trump won. Yes, I mean, but that whole, it was that, all that, Chris Christie. That was but, really the mastermind. But we're just gonna but we're just gonna play that Chris Christie clip. I feel like every time somebody every time somebody drops out and endorses because it's just so funny. The yeah, that's that's totally feasible. I guess the question then is like, what do you want? Like, do you, I mean, being seen as influential is not going to matter much two, three weeks from now, right? Being seen as having tipped that primary in one direction or another, I don't know how much that matters. But won't for, Joe Biden for, remember? Well, that's the question. I mean, what for for someone like for Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, and we are, you know, you'd have to make an enormous leap to assume that they that their egos would allow them, or their, that their their egos would even allow them to consider anything below president or vice president right now. But like, are you making this calculation saying like you definitely like if I definitely get a cabinet position, I'm willing to endorse you? I mean, like, it, I don't know the 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 chessboard is a little bit it's a little bit hazy right you're now. You're not going to get that kind of promise, but you're going to buy yourself a lot of lottery tickets by sure. doing it. And the sooner you do it, the better, right? Because you're stepping out on a little bit of a ledge. Because then, if Bernie wins wins the nomination and or the presidency, you pick the wrong horse. But we'll see. I think it's something to watch for. That's South Carolina Saturday night. Three days later, we get Super Tuesday. Yeah. I did not know that the name Super Tuesday stretched all the way back to 1976. Uh, I also didn't know that Super Tuesday was at one point in our history a way for the South to basically elbow its way into the nominating process. Uh You'll remember Bill Clinton being launched in a lot of ways in 1992 by Super Tuesday. Uh, Super Tuesday is not terribly Southern this year because California moved up its primary in order for that state to be influential. And because you have California and Texas, along with big states like Massachusetts, Super Tuesday now accounts for about a third of the delegates in the Democratic primary. It's the biggest day of the primary campaign by far. And by the way, if you're watching at home, Uh Vermont, according to The Washington Post, is the first poll to close at 7 p.m. Eastern. If you are going to hang in for the Super Tuesday TV marathon, do not be at the t- on the TV at 7 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> as much as you might want to see those Vermont results. Just take your time. Remember, California doesn't close till 11 Eastern, and California does mail-in ballot. So just Ooh. pace yourself, people. Um, two things to watch for, David. Bernie Sanders is going to accumulate a whole bunch of delegates. But how many will he accumulate versus, say, Joe Biden? And we're assuming here Biden is winning South Carolina. Biden... His campaign staff is not particularly well organized in the Super Tuesday states. He's planning on running a little advertising, but it's much less than many of his opponents. Um, That's thing number one to watch. Number two, Bloomberg, the one-time savior, becoming Bloomberg the spoiler. Hmm. Nate Silver notes this. Generally speaking, Bloomberg is at a risk of being at less than 15% in Bernie's strongest states, which is helpful to Bernie since Bloomberg drains votes from other moderates but may get very few delegates of his own. In Biden's strongest states, i.e. in the South, Bloomberg is usually over 15%. It would be fairly hard to engineer a polling scenario in which Bloomberg was more helpful to Bernie, in other words. Of course, polls could change before Super Tuesday. Uh, What? I don't even want to comment on this because I feel like I'm just like reverse jinxing Bloomberg into the presidency. But what a <laughs> wild life cycle of a presidential campaign that would be if he was if he went from well wherever he was a week and a half ago to to like spoiler in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I I think I think this is one of those 
is this is where you really want the book afterwards. Yeah. Because when it occurs to the Bloomberg campaign that they got Bernie elected, um, I just want that moment to be. I would say Howard Wolfson, you know, comes in and taps the former mayor on the shoulder and has something bad to tell him. <laughs> I, I want that documented. I want yeah. the I can't wait. Who, who, again, if it's I think it's Ryan Liz and Olivia Nuzzi, right? That's who we decided is is the is the new uh game change. I, I mean, hypothetically or literally, I think they probably have a book contract already. No, they do have a book contract. <laughs> but I don't. Okay. But are they filling the game change lane? Yes. Are they going for something else? I don't definitely, know. Definitely. Anyway, it's up to you guys. Just get it all down. I, we, we're we're going to read it. Uh, Silver also notes one more scenario to watch for, David. Let's say Bernie does very well in California, but thanks to those mail-in ballots, is going to take a long time to count California. And in time zone terms, terms let's say Biden does very well on the East Coast right? Or in the South. Well, everyone could go to bed with Joe Biden having a nice night. It could ultimately work out that Bernie has a, an even nicer night or even a much better night. But Joe Biden will win something of a short-term media victory. I think that matters less nowadays, but I don't think it's nothing. And I wouldn't be shocked if that happens either. No, I mean, I, I think it certainly does matter less uh, simply because, uh, you know, our media landscape is... Uh, drawn on uh, you know social media more so than on the news networks or whatever but and i think the news networks will be circumspect enough to not you know say this thing's over not try to paint any you know just unrealistic expectations for what the next morning will look like but yeah i mean i think that that's that's really interesting to watch especially just because overall perception um is gonna i mean means a lot especially in a field of this size yeah and i think we we've noted this before in various cases americans media consumers as i like to say want the news now and they don't understand why we don't why there are things that are unknowable mm-hmm. we saw this a little bit in 2018 we're saying well why are they still counting votes in in california how come all these democrats are coming from behind well that's just the way it works yeah but there's also i mean we're talking about counting i mean about tallying up delegates in california if bernie has a decisive win without the mail-ins being counted i think that's all the story that we really need to know people aren't going to worry about delegate count for several weeks now well yeah. So I'll give you several days. I'm okay. Well, you're right. You're right. Because that narrative will, will take, I mean, certainly if Bernie, if Bernie is, is risking being in a, being in a position of not going in with a plurality of the delegates to the, to the convention, then that does become the overarching narrative and who the hell knows where coverage takes us from there. But, um, but I think, I think that he's, if he win, I mean, who knows I was going to do in California, but if he wins by a healthy margin in California by the votes that have been counted, I think he's safe. But that's we're 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 assuming a whole lot. We're assuming that Joe Biden's going to win South Carolina. So you know, there's a lot of assumptions going in. Speaking of coverage, segue. The next time you hear this pod will be Tuesday night. Once we get enough results that David and I can hold forth semi confidently, <laughs> ha ha. Immediately after, uh, immediately after the the northeastern states are counted, we're, <laughs> exactly. just... we're we're all in on who wins. Massachusetts wins the whole thing, <laughs> according to us. Anyway, sit back Tuesday night, make fun of Chris Matthews, and then watch your phone because we will have a pod up that night. All right, David, let's talk about David Wright and Project Veritas. David Wright is the ABC News correspondent, not the baseball player. He was suspended on Tuesday. Why? Project Veritas, the conservative group that tries to use slapdash sting operations to expose liberal bias, recorded video of Wright criticizing his employer while Wright was covering the presidential primary in New Hampshire. Some highlights from Wright's off-the-cuff ramblings, he says, commercial imperative is incom- incompatible with news. 
Like now you can't watch Good Morning America without there being a Disney princess or a Marvel Avenger appearing. It's all self-promotional. Uh, goes on to say that ABC News wasn't terribly interested in voters and mentioned the network doesn't hold Trump to account. We also don't give him credit for what things he does do. I got to say, like almost every other Project Veritas sting, huge air <laughs> yeah. quotes. I can't wait to see what comes next. Well, weren't you <laughs> incredibly underwhelmed? Yeah. But what, I mean, I'm sorry, were those outtakes from the script for broadcast news back in 1985? <laughs> oh, well, there's commercial imperatives in, in TV oh, news? Oh, my God. Who knew? Uh, he also called himself a socialist on the tape, which I think without that, it would have been a lot less, gra- you know, there would have been a lot less yeah. headline attention. Um, but, he's, but he sort of referred to himself in a socialist in a sort of, you know, old man bar talk sort of way. Just like, well, I guess if you think health is a right, you can call me a socialist, you know. Can't you be um, a socialist? The the, oh, the Democratic no. front runner is a socialist. Can't you no, be I, a socialist? I, I'm, I'm just I know pointing. you're not saying that, but I'm just saying humanity. You can be a socialist and still be a news correspondent. Absolutely. Um, this was certainly not the, you know, earth shattering expose that, that some made it out to be. I actually haven't even seen if there's been a, any pushback on the content and the content because you know lord knows project veritas has has some selective editing in their in their history um but even assuming this is 100% on the level i mean i mean david wright might have just gotten my vote for president i mean he's 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 <laughs> the fact that he was willing to go out there and just say these things just like speak hard truths you know and 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 uh and and have clear eyes about the way that the world and the and the the news economy works i mean that it's it's hard to fault him for it. I think the problem is, you know, you get caught saying it out loud, or more importantly, you get caught saying it without knowing that you're being you get you get caught being tricked, and that's probably the most you know damnable offense that there is. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty surprising, is it not, that ABC News fell for this? That that they're getting rolled just like everyone else has gotten rolled. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, let, let's just say this. The things that he said, it appears that he said, and it appears that he meant, you know, I mean, I, I know he, he's probably walked them back a little bit, but if something, in, if ABC News finds something in there, uh, susp- like suspension worthy, then okay. I don't think, I mean, I, I don't think there's any question that he said it and, and you know, was fairly straightforward about it, but nothing that he said should be suspension worthy. No. I mean, nothing that, no, I mean, and, and we're presuming, I think probably correctly, that they're reacting to the... Uh, the sort of the wave that comes with any Project Veritas drop and 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 the you know massive amounts of well shit talk on Twitter for lack of a better word. Um, sometimes you just got to suspend somebody to to you know quiet those voices down and move on. But uh, but it they're just not seems... gonna be quiet. They're bad faith actors. No, I mean they that, don't no, care. Absolutely true. I know you're not arguing that, but I'm just saying they just don't care, right? They they don't care, and they don't care about impartiality. Mm-hmm. Project Veritas cares about impartiality. Yeah, come on. No, you're right. I mean, it's the same. It's it's echoes of you know the way you would hear, you know, Gawker writers. You still hear former Gawker writers complain when people just like still have not studied the GamerGate playbook and just get totally you know just tricked by a hundred bots emailing you to say they're never going to read your website again or watch your channel again. <laughs> it's a it's ridiculous. I mean, this is a if this is suspending him, even if they did it just as a PR calculation, this is an outdated PR handbook, right? And and they and it's not going to help. All it's going to do is make them thirstier to do it again and again, yep. which we see because as many times as 
Project Veritas seems to have, you know, disappeared. They keep making comebacks, just like getting people to say really normal things, uh, you know, in sketchy sketchy videotapes and bars, and uh, they make it seem like it's a big story. Let's do some listener mail, David. I put out an APB, and man, did we get a lot of questions. We'll spread them out over a couple of weeks. They're fantastic. This one's from Josh Peterson. He asks, what's the sports equivalent of MSNBC covering the hometown Democratic primary in terms of just missing everything that's right in front of them? Local Homer radio, play-by-play homers that can't acknowledge the team sucks. <laughs> um, I don't quite think it's Homer radio because a Homer in sports announcing terms is somebody who's pretending that the home team never makes a mistake. It would be like... It would be like a, I mean, you, you tell me if you think this is right. It would be like if like the the Sixers play by play guy in the '90s was just offended by the person, but by the 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 look of Allen Iverson and never and never gave him credit when he was on the court winning mm, games. For that's them. good. Yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, you're onto I, something. I I don't. It's 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 hard. Or just it's hard offended to, by the way he plays basketball, maybe something sure. like that. Yeah, and I think I think that's more of what it is because I think the thing about MSNBC that is frustrating mainly for liberals, is that they don't play by Fox rules, right? You actually hear people saying that a lot now on Twitter. What we need is to say, fuck this journalism thing. We need a we need a kind of propaganda arm like the Republicans have, right? Mm-hmm. Fox, you remember, remember in 2016 when they just flipped the switch, when everybody was anti-Trump and then they were pro-Trump? Yeah. And it was like, oh, we're pro-Trump. MSNBC is, I think, unsatisfyingly to everybody, actually covering this thing and then there's Chris Matthews over there making those anti-Bernie comments. So it's just weird and it's hard to wrap your mind around. We're going to we're going to work on that analogy. Uh David, we've talked about the genre of news story known as the old guy still got it. <laughs> Martin Scorsese makes the Irishman, the old guy still got it. Our pal Hugh Hopkins asks, if the Democratic primary comes down to Bernie, Biden and Bloomberg, is it inevitable that the old guy will still have it? <laughs> and is, in fact, this the last time we can say this because the Democratic primary will almost certainly not be filled with late 70s men next time around, though, I guess. Who knows? We didn't think it would this time either. I'm trying to really imagine those stories being written. I'm going to I'm going to give this full credence. I think Biden is the most likely candidate should he emerge mm-hmm. as the old, the old guy still got a candidate because we have, you know, Biden's run in two recent elections, albeit as vice president. And sort of had a little notorious mojo that, you know, we will imagine that back into existence if his poll number, if his numbers start going up. Bernie, although he's been a senator forever, I don't think the perception is that he's a big winner through, you know, throughout his career that, you know, no one thinks about all those victories. So it's I don't even know if it's if he's an old guy still has, has it category so much as just, you know, he's the old guy um, and Bloomberg. Sure. I mean, God, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> no, no. Bloomberg, Bloomberg will not get it. I feel Bernie had a little old guy still got it mojo after the heart attack, maybe with the AOC endorsement. So that's right. in, in the fall. Everybody wants to write that story for Biden right now. The press, however, temporarily. Right. That is the inevitable next media chapter of this campaign. Biden wins South Carolina. There is there is the glimmer of a Biden comeback. Right. Yeah. Whether it whether it happens or not, and boy, I wouldn't bet on it given the way Biden's run his campaign thus far. But that's what people want to write mm-hmm. right now. Old guy still got it. 
Bernie's sort of more of the, it's a slight variation, but Bernie's more of like the, this old guy is still a kid at heart. Yes. Right? Yeah. He's, he's a, still making experimental movies. You know, he's, <laughs> he's still writing zines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I like that. That, that we'll, we'll come up with the, another genre for Bernie next time. Doug Lindblom, David, asked us this one. The final question at Tuesday night's debate was asking the candidates, what is a misconception about you? And what is your motto? <laughs> By the way, what a weird combination of questions that was. Uh, Lindblom asks us, what is a misconception about you? And what is your motto? Oh, my God. Can I go first? Yeah. Are you going to answer for yourself or for me? Oh, I was going to go for, answer for myself. Okay, you, go ahead. <laughs> um, misconception about me is that I am not the editor of The Ringer. <laughs> so I get I get like two emails a week saying, Brian, I have the story idea, and you're the perfect person to edit it. And I said, well, I'm actually not. Thank you, but I'm not, because I'm not an editor. I haven't edited a story in a really long time. Uh, my motto, I'm going to steal this from Dan Jenkins. And this, this is actually a motto I live by. Write shorter. Nobody reads a garden hose. <laughs> I love that. I love that. The worst, the worst thing for me would be to go on too long, except on this podcast would be to go on too long in print. Write shorter. Nobody reads a garden hose. What's yours, David? Well, you're really putting me on the spot here. I had no time to prepare. Well, this this wasn't the show notes, but uh, that's all right. Uh, I mean, a com one common misconception of me, at least according to my Twitter mentions, is that I'm a Trump supporter. So I can probably, I can put that to bed. <laughs> we don't listen to this show, obviously. Oh, man. I mean, you know, just trying to, tr just trying to like take both sides at face value, I think is a little bit difficult. Uh, so I mean I I mean that's a, that's an easy answer. Um, what my motto? My, well, my my old motto um, uh, was uh, David can get it done, but Mike Bloomberg stole that. Really, uh, <laughs> we have we have some a lawsuit pending. Um, the art department motto is still David can get it done. <laughs> uh, I feel like I mean, am I obligated to go like Ric Flair here to be the man? You got to beat the man. Should that should sure. that be that? That's my motto for the rest of the presidential uh, for the for the primary process. To be the man or woman, uh, you got to beat the man or woman. Or woman. There you go. Thank you for updating Ric Flair's uh, motto. Or I guess everybody's got a price. That would be probably <laughs> an apt one for, the, for this, for this cycle. Mm. Uh, that may, might make more sense. Last question, David. You know the show Shit's Creek? Oh, yeah. With Very Eugene popular Levy? in my household. There you go. Well, Max McLean, who is a listener, says the character Alexis Rose is sending you a cease and desist letter for the copyright infringement you blatantly employ each and every time you open the pod. Listen to this. Ew, David. 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 What? What's your point, David? David. It's not David. David. Honestly, David, <laughs> I didn't go missing, David. The FBI knew where I was the entire time. You're like a big, dirty raccoon, David. David? David? <laughs> I'm now going to open the pod going, David? You're like a big, dirty raccoon. <laughs> and what I want to know is, I love that. I'm in. I'm in. Thank you, Max McLean. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker. Guess is a strain pun headline. Woo! Tuesday's headline about a folk music festival in Minnesota was, It All Went Accordion to Plan. <laughs> As usual, our listeners are funnier than we are. Jim Babcock says, Depending on what Minnesota city the winter festival was in, he nominates Funky Cold Medina. <laughs> Medina? Is it Medina, Minnesota or Medina? I'm sure we'll get corrected. Today's headline comes from Alec McDonald. 
It's a great one from the East Bay Times up there in Northern California. Remember that great story the Athletic had about pitcher Madison Bumgarner competing in multiple rodeos under an alias? Oh, yeah, that's a great story. Well, the Wires picked it up, and they put a double pun headline on it. David, I want you to focus on the idea of multiple rodeos. Uh, multiple not, rodeos. Not your first rodeo? Oh, okay. We're, we're halfway home. We're halfway home. Uh... And then I have to like add pitch or ball onto it somehow. Is that the idea? Not his first rodeo. Uh, colon. I want you to remember that Madison Bumgarner was participating in a roping competition. Not his first Ro- rodeo. Roping. Roping. Lasso. Uh, lariat. What am I? Uh, roping. It's, is, oh, stick I was with roping. using roping. Um, not his first rodeo. What is something that athletes like baseball Rope players are often caught doing? Uh, caught doing? You know, injecting a little something into their body that they're not steroids, supposed to. Steroids? PEDs? Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhymes with roping? Doping. Uh, something about a, a roping scandal or a... Uh, um, God, I have no idea. Bumgarner admits to roping. Oh, So it's not great. his first rodeo. Bumgarner admits to roping. Love it. Somebody on the AP was... I had a couple of Red Bulls that day, feeling charged <laughs> up. Yeah, that was good. That's good stuff. I mean, a story like that, you got to have a little bit of fun with. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Erica Cervantes and Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. Programming note, Tuesday Super Tuesday. Stay up late because we're back that night with analysis of the results, what comes next, everything. And, of course, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you, Brian. I gotta say, <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to see what comes next. <laughs> that whole show was a mess. Yeah, everybody was worried. Sure, I mean, but, oh God, I don't even want to think about it. So, what's your plan? It's a good question. I, I mean, what if, do you do? Shit talk on Twitter. That's huge, right? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this full creed. Don't care. Uh. <laughs> uh you're like a big, dirty raccoon. This old guy is still a kid at heart. Don't care. I guess everybody's got a price. Though. Come on. <laughs> well, you would know better than me. By far. To be the man or woman, uh, you got to be the man or woman. Whoa, okay. We're, we're halfway home. It would be wild if... Don't care. Yeah. What do you do? Speak hard truths, you know, and... and, and uh, well, yeah. I think the problem is... You know, you get caught saying it out loud, or more importantly... I think that matters less nowadays, but I don't think it's nothing. (laughs) And I wouldn't be shocked if that happens either. No, I mean, I I think it certainly does matter less. This is going to be bad later. Because this looks absolutely terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure either. Um, Fuck this. uh, I... Suck? I... Don't even want to comment on this because I suck. Uh, I lost all mojo. I'll give you several days. What a wild life cycle. Good point. Yeah. David. Yeah. Should instead have been named. Yeah. Crazy ass. Ah, uh, he's making a lot of sense. We like you. Yeah. We admire you. Fantastic. We're just afraid you're gonna go cuckoo. 
<laughs> yeah. 